Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 7129. Apollo 15, the week of July 18, 1971. The summer of 71, Southwest Airlines has just started flying. After the Pentagon Papers appeared in the New York Times, the accusations started flying. The 26th Amendment to the United States Constitution has just lowered voting age from 21 to 18. The World Trade Center's South Tower has just been topped off, and the pure imagination of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is now playing in theaters. Oh, and Apollo 15 is about to lift off for the moon, next week in fact. David Scott and Jim Irwin are mere days away from becoming the first astronauts to drive a lunar rover across the surface of the moon. As was often the case in the days before original cable programming and long before streaming, there wasn't much on American TV. But in the UK, the week before Apollo 15 went to the moon, the Brits had some pure imagination pouring out of the small screen, too. And that brings us to this special Apollo 15 edition of Retrogram. <laughs> Ace of Wands, Season 2, Episode 1, Seven Serpents, Sulphur and Salt, Part 1, aired on TAMS Television on July 21, 1971. Taro is an enigmatic stage magician plying his trade for appreciative audiences with the help of his assistant Luli, with whom he shares a kind of telepathic bond, and Sam, his rough-and-ready one-man stage crew and prop department. Tarot's friend, antique bookseller Mr. Sweet, is the point of contact for anyone who wants to reach Tarot. You see, as a master illusionist, Tarot has a keen insight into what's possible and what's impossible. And when he's not performing magic on stage, Tarot takes on cases and solves mysteries, the kind that have either left the police baffled or are so strange and possibly supernatural that no one has even called the police for fear that no one will believe them. Tarot's cases are sometimes dangerous, involving rival magicians, wannabe wizards, and practitioners of black magic. But if there's one thing Tarot won't stand still for, it's allowing innocent people to be preyed upon by anyone wielding such powers. Seven Serpents, Sulphur, and Salt, Episode 1 An agitated man bursts into Mr. Sweet's bookstore, and much to the surprise of Luli, who's minding the till, he demands to call Mr. Sweet on the phone, wherever Mr. Sweet happens to be, 
and he asks Luli to give him some privacy. The man is agitated because he's being followed, and he's being followed because he has a piece of paper he thinks his stalker would kill to get a hold of. He hides that paper in the pages of one of Mr. Sweet's books, and, on the phone, starts to give Mr. Sweet a message. It's about this time that Luco, the sinister little man who's been doing the kind of stalkery following, just appears in the same room with him. All Mr. Sweet hears on the phone is two words, seven serpents, and then a rush of wind. Luli opens the door to see what's making all this noise. Luco isn't there, but the man on the phone, he's not just dead, his body is already covered in cobwebs. Time to talk to Taro, but Luli uses her ESP because, holy cow, let me tell you a story about the last person who made a phone call in this room. Taro and Sam arrive quickly with Mr. Sweet not far behind them. Taro recognizes the signs of someone who used supernatural powers to kill, and there's something else, the dead man's walking stick complete with an arcane inscription. When Mr. Sweet reads that inscription, the cane comes to life and points Taro and friends, like a divining rod, to the book where the deceased hid that piece of paper. It's cut in the shape of one-seventh of a circle, and there's a serpent of some kind drawn on it. Mr. Sweet thinks it's a very old piece of paper and a very old drawing, as in 14th century old. Taro starts handing out assignments. Luli is to take the paper back to Taro's secretive high-rise apartment to photograph it. And Mr. Sweet is to try to find out more about the paper's origins. And Sam? Sam gets to stay with Taro in Sweet's bookstore all night because somebody just got killed over a very old and very cryptic piece of paper. And whoever killed him didn't get the paper, so they will probably be back, and soon. Mr. Sweet goes to see the elderly verger of a nearby church who is appalled when he learns what Sweet has found. That paper is a piece of serious trouble. Hey, remember Mr. Luco? Yeah, he just killed a guy over a piece of paper that he then couldn't find, and now Luco is having to explain that to his employer. Meet Mr. Stabs. Snappy dresser, though his style is pretty out of date, sort of like he got dressed whew, better part of a century ago. Slicked back hair, incredibly pale skin, wears gloves all the time, and he says that he himself reports to the devil. Sanity is probably not one of the positive traits on his OK Cupid profile. If he was on horseback, he'd be a pale rider. Everything about this guy screams sinister, and he's pretty honked off at Luco. Luco was supposed to retrieve that paper using any force necessary. And while Luco has probably tipped off the authorities that there's a killer on the loose, he didn't get the paper. Mr. Stabs is running low on patience. If you want something done right, you've got to break back into the bookstore yourself. But Mr. Stabs won't do it until night has fallen. And remember, he reminds Luco, in our world, the natural sequel to failure is oblivion. I think that means don't screw it up again. Stabs and Luco break into the bookstore to begin looking for the paper. They've correctly guessed that their victim hid it in a book, but which one? Mr. Stabs starts talking, to his own hands. Well, chanting is more like it. Hand of Stabs, search and find. The sacred serpent, rest my mind. Suddenly, Stabs' own hands start acting kind of like the dead man's cane. They're leading him toward where the paper was hidden. Oh, by the way, the dead man is still there, and he also seems to be moving slightly. Just as Mr. Stabs pulls the book off the shelf, the dead man's hands reach out for him and Luco. Luco runs for it, and Sam pops out from between some bookshelves to tackle him, 
but Luca is too fast and he races out the door. Sam turns to help Taro because Taro is dressed in the dead man's clothes, lying in ambush. Mr. Stabs, however, is still letting his fingers do the talking. Hand of Stabs turned this fool into a fish without a pool. And suddenly, Taro can't breathe. Mr. Stabs isn't done talking to the hand yet. Hand of Stabs, another job. Transform this ape into a dog. And now Sam drops to all fours and starts barking. Let's be clear, he hasn't physically turned into a dog. He's just a man on the floor, barking helplessly as Stabs takes the book and leaves the shop. As soon as he's gone, there's a rush of wind, and his spells have worn off. Well, gee, we sure showed him. Taro and Sam head back to Taro's place at the first morning light, where they find that Luli couldn't really get a good photo of the paper. It's like it didn't want its picture taken. Mr. Sweet returns with Mr. Postle, the church verger, who announces that an immediate exorcism is in order for anyone who's touched that piece of paper. The evil spirit of the seven sacred serpents must be expelled. He tells Sam to draw some chalk circles on the floor, and he himself begins marking the foreheads of everyone there. The paper is placed in the center between the chalk circles. Everyone except Mr. Postle steps into a circle. He begins chanting slowly at first, and then frantically toward a fever pitch, as he repeats the phrase, Seven serpents, sulfur and salt! Seven serpents, sulfur and salt! As for the paper with the serpent drawn on it, Whoa, it's a real live snake now, and it's getting bigger. Sam screws his eyes shut. Taro and Mr. Sweet can't even move. But Luli is terrified. She can scream, and she can move. Right out of her protective circle. To be continued. Ace of Wands was created by, and this episode written by, Trevor Preston. He had been a fixture on the landscape of British TV for both kids and adults since the late 60s when he adapted C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a ten-part series produced in black and white by ABC Weekend Television, this being the UK ABC, as in Associated British Corporation, not the U.S. network with the same initials. This ABC was the same British broadcaster that produced The Avengers, and it lost its license as the weekend broadcaster for the Midlands and the North regions, merging with the London weekday independent broadcaster Rediffusion to form a new entity, Thames Television, in 1968. The notion of having completely different broadcasters during the week from the ones transmitting over the weekend is a byproduct of Britain's independent television authority, which was created in 1954 to oversee the turbulently competitive market for a non-state-affiliated television broadcaster in the UK. Since television production and transmission are expensive businesses, these stations would be responsible for only the weekdays and weeknights, or the weekends from about 5 or 6 o'clock Friday night until Monday morning. It'd be like having CBS during the week, but Fox on the weekends. And actually, if you think about it from an American perspective, the early days of networks like Fox and UPN and the WB are a good analogy because they originally provided only two or three nights of primetime programming and left the rest up to the local stations to fill. At some point, I could probably do a whole retrogram special about the Byzantine history of Britain's independent television authority and how it led to the monolithic modern ITV network, but more on that another time. Back to Trevor Preston, he wrote episodes of Callan, Special Branch, The Protectors, Six Days of Justice, The Sweeney, Fox, The Ruth Rendell Mysteries, and even a couple of episodes of Sci-Fi Channel's series The Secret Adventures of Jules Verne that aired in 2000.
Trevor Preston died in 2018 at the age of 79. It's interesting to note that he also wrote one episode each of the children's mystery anthology series Drama Rama and Shadows, and in each of these cases he was trying to revive the character of Mr. Stabs outside of his Ace of Wands context. The star of Ace of Wands, and the only actor to appear in all 46 episodes produced over three years, was Scottish-born actor Michael McKenzie. Michael was lucky enough to land the role of Tarot very early in his professional acting career, having racked up just a few credits in television series and miniseries, such as Doctor in the House, Crime of Passion, and Albert and Victoria. After Ace of Wands, he returned to the stage, not resurfacing on TV, until he guest-starred in the second episode of Blake's Seven as a thuggish, bearded Federation guard whose downfall was, ironically, getting distracted by Villa performing magic tricks. Other TV credits include The Omega Factor, Edge of Darkness, Rabsy Nesbitt, Cardiac Arrest, Hamish Macbeth, Taggart, Dear Green Place, Gary Tank Commander, and Armchair Detectives. The part of Luli Palmer, who was featured only in the first two seasons of Ace of Wands, was played by Judy Lowe, for whom this was her first credited TV gig. She later went on to appear in the BBC series Woodstock, Edward the King, Couples, Ripping Yarns, When the Boat Comes In, Good Night and God Bless, Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense, The Russell T. Davies Supernatural Soap Opera Revelations, Casualty, and Holby City. In the late 90s, she starred as Commander Catherine McTiernan in both seasons of the Sky One science fiction series Space Island One, which is outside Retrogram's time frame, but we do cover Space Island One in the logbook episode guides. On the big screen, she's appeared in Monty Python's Meaning of Life and in 2015's Absolutely Anything, which was written and directed by Terry Jones and features most of Jones's fellow Monty Python alumni. Judy's daughter just happens to be Kate Beckinsale, who was born about a year after Ace of Wands went off the air. Tony Selby is Sam Maxted, Tarot's street-smart friend and helper. As with Luli, Sam only appears in the show's first two seasons. Tony had done the TV rounds since the 1950s, with appearances in Compact, The Avengers, Department S, Shine a Light, Callan, The Adventures of Black Beauty, Get Some In, Jack of Diamonds, and Hideaway. In both the 1986 and 87 seasons of Doctor Who, he played the recurring role of intergalactic conman Sabalom Glitz, opposite both the Sixth and Seventh Doctors, and he also appeared in an episode of Stan Lee's Lucky Man. It sounds like our odds of encountering the stars of Ace of Wands in other installments of Retrogram are pretty good. Donald Lane Smith guest-starred as Mr. Sweet in all three seasons of the show. He had been a familiar face on British TV since the 50s as well, appearing in Theater 625, ITV Playhouse, Zed Cars, and Not in Front of the Children. His recurring role here, appearing in ten episodes total over the three seasons of the series, was one of his last credited roles. We lost Donald in 1996. Russell Hunter was Mr. Stabs, and Russell had appeared in everything from armchair theater to a 1970 TV production of Sweeney Todd prior to this three-parter, his only Ace of Wands appearance. Both before and after Ace of Wands, Russell Hunter starred in the Edward Woodward spy series Callan as Lonely, who was Callan's connection to the dark, seamy criminal underworld. Callan ran from 1967 through 72 and returned as a movie in 1974, with a TV reunion movie in 1981, and Hunter returned to the role of Lonely in both of these productions. 
He would also do an encore of sorts as Mr. Stabs when that character resurfaced in a 1975 episode of the children's anthology series Shadows, written by Ace of One's creator Trevor Preston. When the character of Mr. Stabs reappeared in a 1984 episode of another anthology series, Drama-Rama, the role was recast. Russell Hunter guest-starred in the much-loved 1977 Doctor Who story The Robots of Death as Commander Yuvanov, with later appearances in The Gaffer, Casualty, Taggart, and the pilot episode of the Norman Lovett sitcom I Love It. Uh, think of that title in terms of I, Claudius, or I, Robot, and then you get the joke. During the 1970s, Russell was married to Carolyn Blakiston, who originated the character of Mon Mothma in Return of the Jedi. We lost Russell Hunter to cancer in 2004, but not before he insisted on appearing in an Edinburgh Festival Fringe production of Twelve Angry Men, even as the disease was in its final stages. Russell Hunter was a showman to the last. Ian Trigger played the menacing Mr. Luco. He had appeared in The Corridor People and The Foresight Saga on the small screen, with movie roles in Up Pompeii and the infamous 1994 Roger Corman version of The Fantastic Four. Sadly, Ian Trigger died in 2010. The three parts of this story were far from being director Pamela Lonsdale's only contribution to Ace of Wands. She was the producer of the first season, but by this point had left the show on a full-time, day-to-day basis to create and oversee other children's programming, and she would go on in 1972 to create the much-loved British kids' series Rainbow, which ran for 20 years. She also produced the first two seasons of the 1980s sci-fi series Chucky, so we'll be covering more of her work in other installments of Retrogram. For what it's worth, she was also the producer overseeing both Shadows and Dramarama, so she too can claim some credit for trying to keep Mr. Stabs in circulation. I think it would be a bad idea not to mention two other stars of Ace of Wands. One of them is Fred the Owl, and he played the part of Tarot's pet Malaysian fishing owl, Ozymandias, throughout the series. The writer's notes for the show included the following mention of Fred as Ozymandias, or Ozzy for short. He is a great guard bird, loved by all, especially Luli. He has a special love-hate thing with Sam, who refers to it as a mangy lump. Fred is a great actor, and one can write scenes that include him without fear of wasting recording time. Wow, I bet Laurence Olivier himself never got recommendations like that. The other star of the show is the theme song specially written for the series by Andrew Bowen, later of the band Status Quo, with a lyrical assist by Trevor Preston himself. The song is kind of trippy, in a good way, and it had some success on its own as a single released alongside the broadcast of the series. Jet White Dove, Snowback Snake Time has turned his face From the edge of mystery Where running is no race Ageless night, careless day Fate reaches out a hand To touch the edge of destiny A story with no Mystic 
Andrew played alongside some real rock royalty, including Peter Frampton, Pink Floyd, and post-Floyd Roger Waters. But as far as his solo career is concerned, for better or worse, Tarot remains his best-known song. It's also interesting to note that the earliest surviving pitch planning and format documents for Ace of Wands indicate that the original intention was for the series itself to be called Tarot. The cast and crew of Ace of Wands, just for the record, regarded all three parts of Seven Serpents, Sulphur, and Salt as the show's very best installment. There's a great exchange in here on the morning after the confrontation with Mr. Stabs when Tarot and Sam had returned to Tarot's place and told Luli about their wild night. After that, Sam just assumes Luli's there waiting to make his breakfast. I mean, it really is just this side of, you're a woman, aren't you? Start cooking! Except slightly more polite, since they're friends at all. And she just says, sorry, we're clean out of dog biscuits. Sam, maybe you should sit up and beg. Now here's the sad part. That's all adding up to be a really exciting story, isn't it? The problem is, we can't watch it anymore. The first two seasons of Ace of Wands, all 26 episodes worth, are missing, and in all likelihood have been erased, never to be seen again. Network DVD released an outstanding DVD collection of the third season in 2007, which is all that remains of Ace of Wands, with part of one disc taken up by scripts and vintage magazine articles, TV listings, and production documents related to the show. Sadly, not even all of the scripts survived to be included on the DVD. Of the missing and presumed wiped episodes of Ace of Wands, scripts exist for only three complete stories, The Smile, Seven Serpents, and Joker. So yes, the story I just told you about, I only have a script that I can read, but the show itself is gone. There's an audio recording floating around out there, but be warned that its sound quality is very charitably described as poor. Judging by the third season episodes, Ace of Wands is a wonderfully trippy little show that only could have happened in the early 70s. Michael McKenzie is a very commanding presence as Tarot. I'll give credit where it's due. Fred the Owl is also really good at playing the part of an owl. You never want to typecast an actor and pigeonhole them unfairly, but Fred really was at his best playing owl roles since he was an owl. It's sad that Judy Lowe and Tony Selby's entire run on the show is forever lost, and the surviving production still photos from this story make it look like it was probably a tour de force for Russell Hunter as Mr. Stabs. Maybe, if we're extremely lucky, someone might find a copy of this story in the future. It's been known to happen, most famously with Doctor Who episodes that were thought to be lost forever, and the various British broadcasters sold their productions abroad quite often, so it's not impossible that it might turn up in a country outside the UK. But nearly 50 years on, it just seems increasingly improbable. We just have to hope that, as with anything where Tarot is concerned, the missing episodes might turn up like magic. In 1973, Ace of Wands was replaced on the TAMS television schedule by a new sci-fi series called The Tomorrow People.
UFO episode 24 Reflections in the Water aired on ITV on July 24th 1971 The story so far the year is 1980 hidden underground beneath Harlington Straker Film Studios in England is the top secret headquarters of Shadow the supreme headquarters alien defense organization Ex-astronaut and retired Air Force Colonel Ed Straker heads up a remarkably well-equipped international defense force tasked with protecting Earth from near-constant invasion and infiltration attempts by a persistent alien species. They usually appear in their flying saucers. You guessed it, the UFOs of the title, but they are also frequently referred to as UFOs. And how well-equipped is Shadow? We're talking not just an underground base of operations, but a huge computer, radar equipment, a large but usually unmanned satellite conducting constant surveillance of space, a huge submarine called Skydiver that can launch futuristic jet fighters from beneath the surface of the ocean, tank-like mobile ground units, and a fully staffed moon base with space fighters and hotshot pilots on hot standby at all times. Shadow is that well-equipped because the alien invaders will apparently never give up their plans to take over the Earth. Reflections in the Water The merchant vessel Kingston has a visitor on the high seas, or rather, under them. The ship's crew has no idea what to make of it, but hey, we know what the name of the show is. It's a UFO submerged just beneath the surface of the water. Just as the first mate calls the captain to the bridge to take a look at the strange craft keeping pace alongside them, the Kingston starts taking fire. They're under attack. The UFO launches a wave of what looks like flying metal fish, but each of them is a drone that fires lasers at the boat until it's no more. All hands are lost. In space, things aren't looking much better. A civilian spacecraft makes a mayday call reporting a flotilla of 25 incoming UFOs, a call that's heard on the Shadow Moon base shortly before that spacecraft is also destroyed. For those of you just joining us, the first quarter score is Two Nothing Aliens. At the film studio, Straker is a bit bored screening some documentary footage on the fishing industry. He gets a phone call regarding much more urgent business and excuses himself. The director is okay with that because he's just now seeing that his cameraman captured, wow, that's a weird-looking fish to find just off the coast of Cornwall. Better send an underwater film crew back out there. When another scuba-suited cameraman goes back to that spot, he reports seeing something unusual, too. Wow, is that a flying fish? It almost looks metal. And then silence. The rest of the film crew heaves him back into the boat. He's dead. Something cut his airline. Really kind of an odd thing for a fish to do, flying or not, if you think about it. It's a really antisocial fish. When word of the cameraman's death reaches Straker, that's too much of a coincidence to ignore. He dispatches Skydiver and her crew to the mid-Atlantic, near the isolated volcanic island closest to where the Kingston was sunk. Skydiver's sensors record a rise in the water temperature. It's warmer below than it is near the surface, and not because of volcanic activity. A light appears underwater, and the captain of the Skydiver orders evasive action, trying to keep Skydiver out of sight. The light comes into sharper focus, it's a UFO, and it passes by while climbing toward the surface of the Atlantic. It finally goes airborne, and then hangs around the peak of the volcano. Hmm. Skydiver's crew finds something else, too, a power cable laid across the ocean floor, and not by any nation or corporation on Earth. And hey, it looks like if you follow it in a straight line, it would go straight to Cornwall. 
The cable is somehow connected to the volcano, which is being tapped as a power source. Skydiver's cameras find where the cable originates, a huge underwater dome the size of a large building. It's a significant enough find for Straker and Colonel Foster to take a seaplane out to Skydiver's location, where the sub surfaces to take them aboard. They change into scuba gear and, with the help of motorized units, go to inspect the dome close up. They can't find an entrance, but Straker can scrape away some of the dome's surface with a knife, and that loose material can be analyzed later, and, hey, we can see right in where he scraped it. And, hey, isn't that shadow operative Lieutenant Anderson? What on earth is he doing in a dome that's somehow connected to the alien invaders? Straker and Foster return to Skydiver, and from there it's back to Shadow HQ under a cloak of secrecy. Shadow's computer can't come up with a plausible theory for the dome's function, nor can it come up with a reason why Anderson would defect. And hey, Anderson, buddy, pal, let's ask him. Okay, more like let's interrogate him, complete with truth serum. Even under the truth serum, he repeats the same answers he's already given. He wasn't in an underwater dome last night. He was at home, alone. But that means no witnesses. Even after Straker orders a second dose of the truth serum, Anderson's answers don't change. Straker orders the man to be held under close watch anyway. Sid calling Earth, Sid calling Earth. Those 25 UFOs, they're just staying in the same place they were found at the beginning of the episode. Oh, and they've been joined by 25 more UFOs. And the computers analyze the material Straker scraped off the undersea dome. It's a material unknown to humans, but a pliable one. Apply pressure, and a man could probably just push his way in, and the dome's surface would seal behind him. Straker and Foster return to Skydiver and do exactly that. It turns out the computer was right. The breach snaps shut after they enter the dome. There doesn't seem to be anyone around except, Hey, Anderson, what are you doing here? Straker and Foster split up to cover more ground quickly, but then Foster shows up out of his wetsuit and attacks Straker. What are the odds that this isn't really Foster? Straker nearly gets his butt handed to him, but finally beats fake Foster in unarmed combat, just in time for real Foster to show up. Man, I hope you're real Foster. What's behind this door? That's weird. It's a perfect duplicate of Shadow HQ. And there's Anderson. There's Colonel Lake. And there's everybody. But these aren't the real people. There's even another Straker, which I cannot resist the urge to refer to from here on out as the Straker figure. They're rehearsing a scenario involving telling the Shadow Moonbase to stand down and let a huge fleet of UFOs go to Earth. You want to bet that fleet has like 50 ships in it? Okay. Earth defenses will take care of them. Don't worry about it. And then they rehearse ordering Earth defenses to stand down too. That's all Straker needs to see. The real Straker, that is, not the Straker faker. Which I had to point out because I just love saying that. Let's get back to Skydiver and fire some torpedoes at this thing. Uh, but on the way, let's get good and lost in this maze of twisty little passages all alike. Foster gets his scuba gear back on and gets out of there. Just as Straker finds his gear, there's another member of his crew. That is, another duplicate. Someone he works with every day. And he's got to fight this guy before he can get out of the dome. Aboard Skydiver, Foster orders the torpedo strike. Straight to the dome, baby. The underwater power cable is also dealt with, causing the volcano to erupt. The alien presence on Earth, at least as far as this invasion plan goes, is done. But there's still a fleet of 50 UFOs to deal with. 
and Straker tricks that fleet into flying straight into a killing zone by, at least at first, sending them the messages that he saw being rehearsed in the dome, telling them what they were expecting to hear. I guess the aliens weren't, you know, waiting for some positive signal that Team Straker Faker had taken over the real Shadow HQ. Anyway, the invasion is defeated. In Shadow HQ, Ed Straker calls it a day, walks out of his office, and gives the real Lieutenant Anderson a hearty, manly slap on the back. Hey, we're good, right? Sure we are. The end. I'm really bummed that I didn't get to say Straker Faker more than I did. UFO was created by Jerry and Sylvia Anderson and Reg Hill after two of their Super Marionation series, Joe 90 and The Secret Service, failed to take off in quite the same way that Thunderbirds and Stingray had done before them. This was the point at which ITV suggested trying a live-action series with real live actors instead of real live puppets, and the Andersons took the opportunity to pitch the show at an older audience than before, including teenagers and maybe even real live adults. They created a set of characters who had lives and issues outside of the sci-fi plot lines, though those complications tended to exist for only an episode or two because, hey, we've got aliens to fight. The effects work involving vehicles and establishing shots in outer space or under the sea were accomplished in substantially the same way that they had been accomplished in Anderson's puppet-based work, supervised by miniature special effects wizard Derek Meddings. Barry Gray, Anderson's composer collaborator of choice, also signed on for UFO. Ed Bishop starred in UFO as Colonel Ed Straker. Born in New York, Ed Bishop served in the U.S. Army in the 1950s and started to find a little hint of his future calling as a disc jockey on Armed Forces Radio. He went back to college to study business administration, but fell in love with acting along the way and switched majors, graduating from Boston University in 1960, and the same year won a scholarship to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, or LAMDA for short. As early as 1962, he was landing paying gigs, including an uncredited background role in Stanley Kubrick's Lolita. He appeared in the Roger Moore series The Saint and in Man in a Suitcase, also landing big screen roles in the James Bond movie You Only Live Twice, and as the Lunar Shuttle Captain in 2001 A Space Odyssey, again for Stanley Kubrick. As an actual American who could play American characters authentically, Bishop found quite a bit of work in the UK, including voice work. In 1967, Jerry Anderson cast him as the voice of Captain Blue in Captain Scarlet and the Misterons, and in 1969, Anderson actually put Bishop's face on film as Ed Straker when filming began on UFO. He also appeared in Out of the Unknown, Strange Report, The Protectors, Orson Welles' Great Mysteries, and a one-off Jerry Anderson TV movie, Into Infinity, this time as an ever-present but off-screen narrator. He also lent his voice to at least one big Finnish Doctor Who audio that I could think of. Though he occasionally would be called upon to work in the United States, such as providing the voice of Asmodeus in the animated Star Trek episode The Magics of Megas Two, Bishop remained and worked in the UK for most of his life. He would turn up in Whoops Apocalypse, Chalky, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, and the TV series based on the Highlander movies. He died in 2005. Michael Billington co-stars in UFO as Colonel Paul Foster. A fellow James Bond movie veteran who appeared in The Spy Who Loved Me, Michael had TV roles in United, The Prisoner, The Professionals, and then he pulled a kind of reverse Ed Bishop and appeared in numerous American shows, 
such as The Greatest American Hero, Heart to Heart, Fantasy Island, and Magnum P.I., though he was back on British TV before the 80s were out. Michael Billington died in 2005, five days before Ed Bishop. The main guest star in this episode is James Cosmo's Lieutenant Anderson. This is his only UFO appearance, so all of this hand-wringing about a traitor, not our Lieutenant Anderson, that just comes out of nowhere. This was the only time Lieutenant Anderson appeared in UFO. James Cosmo would go on to appear in Doomwatch, the terrifying 1972 BBC TV movie The Stone Tape, Terry Nation's Survivors, Warship, The Sweeney, Dick Barton's Special Agent, Hammer House of Horror, The Nightmare Man, Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Wait, did we just jump the Atlantic again? Yes, we did. He appeared in the 1986 film Highlander as Connor McLeod's cousin Angus, the miniseries The Tenth Kingdom, Braveheart, the 2005 big-screen adaptation of The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, Castle, and Flash Forward. He was Father Kellen Ashby in Sons of Anarchy and Gior Mormont, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, in Game of Thrones. He also appeared on the big screen fairly recently in T2, that is the train spotting sequel, not the Terminator sequel, and Wonder Woman, as well as the John Cleese sitcom Hold the Sunset. This episode was written and directed by David Tomlin. David wrote the first episode of The Prisoner, as well as two other episodes that he also directed. He was one of the showrunners on The Prisoner as well, overseeing all 17 episodes of that legendary series. This was his second and final directing job on UFO, though he would be back to working in the Jerry Anderson Cinematic Universe just a few years later, directing four episodes from the first season of Space 1999. He also wrote and directed Warwick Davis's behind-the-scenes film Return of the Ewok. But David Tomlin's real claim to showbiz fame? He is the first assistant director to the stars. Brace yourself for this list. He was the first AD on The Omen, Superman the Movie, The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Gandhi, Return of the Jedi, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Empire of the Sun, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Braveheart, The Man in the Iron Mask, and many, many others. David Tomlin also died in 2005, mere weeks after Ed Bishop and Michael Billington. Footage from this episode, though not the full episode, not the complete story, was spliced into the 1980 film Invasion UFO, which combined scenes and a few plot lines from several episodes into a single movie intended for television syndication distribution. The other episodes spliced into Invasion UFO were Identified, Computer Affair, Confetti Check AOK, The Man Who Came Back, and ESP. This is going to seem like a, a weird thing to home in on, but I've got to love that screen on the Skydiver set up at the Navigator Station. It's a full 4-3 television set, and it's there to display one horizontal row of numbers. That's it. I mean, maybe by 1970 standards, that looks a lot more futuristic than a row of Nixie tubes or a row of segmented LED numbers. Oh, I don't know. LED numbers probably would have seemed... Uh, pretty spectacular in 1970, because pocket calculators weren't everywhere at that point. The concept of a user interface just wasn't a thing then. This was one of the last nine episodes of UFO produced, filming of which began in June 1970 at Pinewood Studios, after a lengthy break following production of the first 17 episodes, 
at MGM's Borumwood Studios. Now, for context, only in December 1968 had the first computer graphical user interface been seen in a tech demo that is now known as the mother of all demos conducted by Douglas Engelbart in San Francisco at a technical conference. The mother of all demos included the first windowed computing environment with different applications running in different windows on the same screen as well as the first computer mouse, although a very primitive version compared to the ones that we use today. It's very unlikely that Jerry Anderson or anyone involved with making UFO would have been aware of what in hindsight is really a spectacularly monumental technological development. So no user interfaces here, just numbers, one row of numbers, taking up a small portion of a screen built into the set. It must have seemed really advanced at the time that someone would use a whole TV screen just to display those numbers. I love the trippy rear-projected psychedelic colors of the underwater dome interior set. I want to do my place up like that, just blobs of psychedelic color projected onto opaque screens that have odd geometric shapes printed on them. This was soon enough after the introduction of color TV in the UK that UFO was probably operating under the same line of thought that Desilu and NBC used when producing Star Trek in the late 60s in the States, which was, we've got color TV now, go nuts with it and make it colorful. Speaking of Star Trek, in that fight with fake Foster, Straker somehow manages to deploy the two-fisted hammer blow even less effectively than William Shatner as Captain Kirk. So good enough for Shadow is one thing, good enough for Starfleet is quite another. Straker faker. There, I got to say it again. Okay, seriously, I have a lot of questions that were left wide open by this episode. A lot of things left unexplained that it seems like maybe should have been explained. I'm sure it was quite the head trip at the time, but the whole scene with the duplicate crew kind of lays waste to the logic behind them even being there. Each of the duplicate crew, Team Straker Faker, they each have a perfectly ordinary, recognizable portable cassette player at their workstation in the copy Shadow HQ. And they press play on these tape players to feed themselves recorded cues as part of their rehearsal. Okay, now that scene right there just logics itself to death. Why not just have some aliens pressing play on tape recordings with the desired commands from the rehearsal to let the fleet through? Why do you have to duplicate the crew? Just imitate their voices, put it on tape, and, and use that. Why duplicate the crew at all? Now, I'm being careful here not to think of this in 2019 terms, but in 1970 terms. In 2019, you could say, oh, we'll have a voice synthesizer impersonate Anderson or Bishop or whoever you need. But no, the logic doesn't hold up just in 1970 terms with the tape recorders, or even 1970 posing as 1980, the year all of UFO supposedly takes place. What were Straker Faker and his clone crew? Why does that sound like a rap act? Straker Faker and his clone crew in the house! Were they organically grown clones? Were they robots? Were they genetically or surgically modified aliens? Was all of that effort really necessary just to impersonate shadow personnel over radio to lower Earth's defenses? I mean, it's a fun, atmospheric episode. Don't get me wrong, it's a good mystery. 
But if you apply even a little bit of brain power, a little bit of logic to why the aliens were doing what they were doing, the way they were doing it, it all comes across as overcomplicated enough to fill an hour of TV. Oh, by the way, hey, Anderson, before that truth serum wears off, you ever stolen anybody's lunch from the shadow break room fridge? Chances are pretty slim that anyone connected to Apollo 15 watched either Ace of Wands or UFO the week before Apollo 15 took off for the moon. In fact, UFO wasn't syndicated to the U.S. until 1973. Most of the people involved with that upcoming NASA mission were on one continent. Both of this week's shows were on a different continent. One of these shows even has a base on the moon, so you'd think that's the one to beat. But in terms of atmosphere and not having gaping plot logic holes big enough to drop the moon base through. Ace of Wands is probably the more timeless classic of the two, but it's a crying shame that we can't see it anymore. Stick around. Retrogram will be back on the moon before you know it. The Retrogram podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find more of his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by Andrew Howes and DZ, also licensed under Creative Commons. A huge thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you want to help them keep the site and its various podcasts and videocasts alive, that's what Kevin and Darwin and Mark and Javier are doing. You can join them by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook, supporting not just Retrogram, but other podcasts like Select Game and Don't Give This Tape to Earl, and the Phosphor.Fossils videos that appear every other day on the logbook's YouTube channel, unearthing classic video game treasures. Also, Patreon patrons, check your email for a link to a bonus Retrogram that will cover episodes two and three of the thrilling Ace of Wands story we started telling here today. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts and other goodies from our store at redbubble.com slash people slash the logbook, where there are now retrogram t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and other goodies, or by ordering anything your heart desires through our affiliate links at the logbook.com slash store. End of stabs, you might look calm, but remember, Retrogram is a production of the logbook.com. <laughs>